Good morning. All right. Today is uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday, and uh, we're going to have a topical sermon on the sanctity of life and, and a sermon that's it's pretty much about abortion uh, this morning. But before we get started, I really wanted to ask a question, and you don't need to answer this out loud, just in your head. Um, what does Eve, Moses, Rahab, David, Solomon, Peter, and Paul all have in common? They're all heroes of the faith. Yet, they're also all sinners saved by grace. I was reflecting on this as I preached first sermon. Uh, If that was my life, the end of my life, someone said, a hero of the faith, a sinner saved by grace, I'd love that. But I think what defines me more than anything is a sinner saved by grace. Uh, Half those men and women that I mention are murderers. Uh, Moses, the cartoons don't do it justice. It says in scripture, his own testimony that he looked left, he looked right, and then murdered. So premeditated murder. Uh, Half of them were adulterers. Yet all of them were saved by God's grace. As we talk about abortion, I can say honestly that I don't know one person in this room or one person that attends our church that has uh, been or had an abortion or has been associated in any, any, any way with an abortion. Um, so the sermon's not specifically at anyone, if you feel that this morning. But statistics show that there's probably a few of you that have been. As a pastor, I want to make it very clear that you are welcome here and you are wanted here. If you have put your faith in Christ, as Craig said this morning, your sins are forgiven. And Psalms 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The sermon today, I'm not going to lie, is a hard-hitting sermon, and I want to be as honest as I can about the topic of abortion. But I want to start it with grace. God's grace is enormous. And so if you have had an abortion or been a part of an abortion, I want you to keep that in mind. And I'd love to talk to you about it. If you've never told anyone, I encourage you to tell someone that that, um, you trust within the church. Um, And if you want to talk with one of the pastors, we'd love to talk with you about it and and cry with you. And um, uh, as I had already this morning, someone come up to me in tears and talked with them. So with that said, there's three topics I'd like to look at today. The first one is a worldview where abortion makes absolutely no sense. The second topic is a worldview where abortion makes sense. And the third one is the heart of the argument for and against abortion. So I want to start with a worldview where abortion makes absolutely no sense. And this is a biblical worldview. Biblical worldview is a narrative. It's a story. And it's a story that starts with God. In the beginning, God. And we have to start there with God. He's our foundation. He's our everything. Colossians says everything was created by him and everything was created for him. A biblical worldview is radically God-centered. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he did all of that by speaking. It's so amazing to me. He, he, he spoke light into existence. Day one, let there be light. Day two, stretched out the heavens. Day three, spoke earth and vegetations into existence. 
Day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars spoken. Day five, swarms and swarms of living creatures, birds and sea creatures. Day six, land animals. And lastly, he created man. Then gave man everything and said, have dominion. Have you ever wondered, though, why did God create man last? I partly, this is just my guess, I partly think he just didn't want man taking credit for creation. Made everything, then made man, so you can't take credit. But most theologians believe, and I think this is exactly right, man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man. This is the first glimpse we have of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everything else in creation was made by a command. Let there be light. Let the waters bring forth. Let the earth bring forth. But with man, he said, let us make man. One theologian said this, It should be noted that a divine counsel or deliberation preceded the creation of man. Let us make man. This again brings out the uniqueness of man's creation. In connection with no other creature is such a divine counsel mission. Everything else God made out of his authority. Animals let the earth bring forth. But man he made out of his affection. Let us make man. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit made man out of his affection. And God, I mean, it's just amazing to me, God counseled with himself before making man. He said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let's make him like us, after our image, after our likeness. God made man in God's image, meaning man is like God in some aspects, in some way. How does man image God? How is man like God? Well, the Bible, Genesis especially, doesn't specifically explain how. It just says that man images God. And there's a lot of guesses, and I think these are really good guesses, that that maybe it's our reason, our intellect, our will, our emotion, our language, our ethics. But one thing is very, very clear in Scripture. Because man images God, man is valuable. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In a biblical worldview, man and animals are similar. They were made on the same day even. But man was made differently. Man has the thumbprint of God on him. Man was made in God's image. And that's why in a biblical worldview, murder is wrong. Because man has value and dignity, yet it's okay to hunt. Because animals are not made in the image of God. They have value, but they don't image God. One theologian said it this way, The reason that murder is here said to be such a horrendous crime, so that it must be punished by death, is that the man who had, um, has been murdered is someone who imaged God, reflected God, was like God, and represented God. 
Therefore, when one kills a human being, not only does he take that person's life, but he hurts God himself. The God who was reflected in that individual, to touch the image of God is to touch God himself. To kill the image of God is to do violence against God himself. In a biblical worldview, human life has dignity and value. And human life is more valuable than animal life or plant life. Because man images God, and therefore murder is wrong. But also in a biblical worldview, human life and personhood starts at conception. The Bible clearly assumes that the unborn baby is a human, is a person. Some of the the passages we've already read this morning, but here's a few passages that that it's obvious the Bible assumes the the baby in the womb is a person. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before Jeremiah was alive, God knew him. Well, when did life start? It started in the womb. Psalms 22.10, on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Psalms 139.13, for you formed my inward parts, you've knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalms 51.5, behold, I, personal pronoun I, was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Judges 13.7, behold, you shall uh, conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine nor strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child shall be a Nazarite to to God from the womb to the day of his death. In other words, the full span of human existence, the womb to death. Isaiah 49.1 Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb... And the body of my mother, he named my name. Exodus twenty one twenty two, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that the child comes out, in other words, two men get in a fight and someone hits a, a woman that's pregnant and the child comes out premature, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. And the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall uh, uh, pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, if the baby dies in the womb and comes out dead, then you shall pay life for life. And on and on and go. The scripture has many scriptures that just assume the unborn baby uh, is a person. But does the Bible teach that personhood starts at conception? That may be a a more difficult question to answer, but I believe it does. Listen, Hebrews 2.17 says, and this is talking about Jesus, therefore he, therefore Jesus, had to be made like his brothers. In other words, he had to be made like humans in every respect so that he might become a merciful and, and faithful high priest. In other words, so he can sympathize with us. He had to be a human in every respect. Jesus had to experience the full span of human existence in every respect. So here's the question. Where did that full span of human existence begin? Conception. Luke 1.30. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Right? The Greek word for conception means conception. It means to become pregnant or fertilization. Matthew one twenty, But as he considered these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This word conceived is a different Greek Greek word than Luke uses. It emphasizes the male's role in conception. But either way you look at it, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus' life started at conception. So, if Jesus experienced the full span of human existence... In every respect, as Hebrews says, then human existence starts at conception. So in a biblical worldview, human life has dignity and value. Right? Because we're made in the image of God. In a biblical worldview, human life and personhood starts at conception. Therefore, in a biblical worldview... Abortion makes absolutely no sense because, in a biblical worldview, abortion is murder. Listen, murder is defined by the intentional killing of an innocent human. In a biblical worldview, is exactly what abortion is. This is what Albert Moeller says. In the world of the Bible, every single human being and all of life is sacred because of God. And every single human life is sacred because every single human being is made in the image of God. You see, in the biblical world, we come to understand that every one of us has dignity, not because in ourselves we deserve dignity, but because we are made by a sovereign, all-powerful, and holy God who has made us in his image. Therefore, in a biblical world, the abortion makes absolutely no sense. I want to compare that and look at a worldview where abortion makes sense. This is my second point, the second topic to talk about. This is a secular worldview. But before we get started, I want to just make this very clear. That what matters when it comes to the argument about abortion is not what we think the fetus is. It's what the fetus truly is that matters. If the unborn baby is a person then abortion is murder, no matter what society believes or what we call it. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. The fetus is either alive or not alive. The fetus is either human or not human. The fetus is either a person or not a person. What I think the fetus is does not determine what the fetus actually is. If a fetus is a living person, but I do not believe or think that it is a living person, my thoughts have no bearing on what the fetus actually is. Or Pastor Andy says it this way, whether we call abortion murder depends upon whether we call the unborn baby a person. But whether abortion is murder depends on whether the unborn baby is a person. Being a person and simply being called a person are not to be confused. And I want to make sure we're not confusing that as I go over a secular worldview. 
So just because a, a worldview can make sense of abortion does not make abortion right. But I want to look at a belief system that's, that's made abortion possible in our country. Because I want us to see the absurdity of a worldview when you take away God and his word. When you deny him and you deny the authority of his word, you're left with absurdity. And this is a worldview that makes sense of abortion, a secular worldview. Secular humanism or secular worldview is a philosophy or life stance that embraces human reason, ethics, social justice, and philosophical naturalism while specifically rejecting religious dogma, supernaturalism, pseudoscience, and superstition as the basis of morality and decision-making. It's a worldview that says there are no supernatural realities. There's, there's no realities outside of the natural world. Therefore, there is no God. And that means man does not find his value in imaging that God. So here's a scary question. If man doesn't find his value and dignity in imaging God, where does man's value come from? The best answer that um, secular philosophy has given us is that man is more involved. Therefore, we're more valuable. It's a worldview that has adopted evolution as primary theory of, of the existence of man. And therefore, it's anthropology, a study of man, is seen through the lens of the uh, uh, evolutionary process. Man's worth comes from his utility developed in the the evolutionary process, utility being usefulness or capabilities, our rationality, our self-consciousness, our ability to communicate, and so on. Man is more capable than other life forms, therefore, man is more valuable, not because of any image of God. There's two things that should scare us about this logic. The first one is this. What about human beings that aren't as capable of others? The second is this one. Who gets to define what utility is? So I want to go through those questions real quick. All right, the first question. What about human beings that aren't as capable as others? The logical conclusion is they're not as valuable. They're not as valuable. This is what nuclear physicist Winston Duke says about this question. A reasonable philosophy will define a human being as, as life which demonstrates utility or, or self-awareness, volition, or rationality. Thus, it should be recognized that not all men are human. It would seem to be more inhumane to kill an adult chimpanzee than a newborn baby since a chimpanzee is greater, has greater mental awareness. If utility is what defines our worth, then it could be logically argued that an adult chimpanzee is more valuable than a newborn baby because it can be argued that he has more utility, self-awareness, volition, rationality, and so on. And according to Peter Singer, who is the professor of bioethics, life ethics, life morality, at Princeton University, to say otherwise is what he calls speciesism. Let me read his quote. If we compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human animal, a dog or a pig, for example, 
we will often find the non-human to have superior capabilities, both actual and potential, for rationality, self-consciousness, communication, and anything else that would pause to be considered moral significant. No image of God. Humans who bestow superior value on the lives of all human beings solely because they are members of their own species are judging along lines strikingly similar to those by white races who bestow superior value on the lives of the whites merely because they are members of their own race, otherwise known as speciesism. Again, if man doesn't get his value from the image of God, but instead he gets it from his capabilities, where does that lead? Peter Singer believes those who regard the the interest of a woman overriding the merely potential interests of the fetus are taking their stand on a morally secure position. In other words, abortion is morally justifiable. Because, in his logic... The fetus is so incapable and so has so little unity or, or utility, sorry, so little utility that the mere preference of the mother is more valuable than the fetus itself. And this is a typical pro-abortion argument. You, you'll hear this in, in the typical pro-abortion argument. But listen to where this logic goes. And I am thankful for Peter Sr. in this one regard. He is consistent and honest. Furthermore, this situation is essentially unchanged for the newborn child who does not understand what life is about and therefore can have no preference in the matter. If, one, if no one else has a preference that the child should live, in other words, no one wants the newborn child, infanticide, the murder of the infant, within the first month of life can be morally justified. A child can be or a child may not be wanted for various reasons, such as timing, gender, and or inherent diseases. Let me just remind you, this is not just some whack job. This is the professor of bioethics at Princeton University in the Department of Human Values. Listen, if we don't get our worth, or if we get our worth from our capabilities, then what about human beings that aren't as capable as others? Infants, the unborn, elderly, mentally handicapped. In a secular worldview, at best, there isn't a good answer for this. At worst, they're not fully human. The second question is the more scary question. If utility, our our capabilities, determines our worth, then who gets to define what utility is? During the time of Roe versus Wade in 1973, there's two very influential books written on bioethics, written by a man named Joseph Fletcher, again, a professor of bioethics at Harvard University. Joseph Fletcher, in those two books, identified personhood with a minimal degree of human consciousness and intelligibility. Roughly a minimum score of 20 on the Bennett IQ scale. Obviously, he notes, a fetus cannot meet this test, so uh, no matter what its stage of growth. Therefore, a fetus is not a human, and abortion is morally justifiable. Think about how arbitrary that is. 
Who made this man God to determine 20 on an IQ scale is what gives man personhood, value, and dignity? Listen, if man doesn't get his worth from an outside source that is above him, God, then man is the one who gets to define value and personhood. He becomes the ultimate authority. And here's where it gets scary. If man, not God, is the one who defines value and personhood, then man has the ability to change that definition. History has proven that man is willing and capable of doing so. You don't have to look any further than Nazi Germany. This is what one historian said. In the 20th century, we can look at a long parade of horrible terrors. And one of the easiest to identify is the uh, medical ethics of Germany before and during the Third Reich. There, the Germans actually had a medical philosophy called life unworthy of life. That, it, that formed the foundation for their murderous atrocities. The Germans actually came up with a gradu- graduation of life. And the life that was worthy of life was Aryan life. It was the life of those who were considered to be physically and genetically superior, who can contribute to the welfare and the defense of the policies of the Third Reich. In other words, had capabilities, utility. Does that sound familiar? That's the life worthy of life. And the life unworthy of life were the gypsies, homosexuals, the mentally retarded, the uh, physically disabled, and the Jews. So what Albert Muller comments on this uh, um, uh, paragraph. We look back at the Third Reich of the German medical ethics that produced it, and we ask ourselves, how could it be that agents of medicines and doctors could turn into agents of death? It is because they bought into a worldview in which there is a progression from life worthy of life to life unworthy of life. Well, if you can do that in terms of Jews and you can do that in terms of gypsies and in terms of others, then you um, can certainly do that in terms of the various stages of human development. If man, not God, is the one who defines value and personhood, then man has the ability to change that definition. Nazi Germany did it. Life unworthy of life. And modern America is doing it. The unborn is a life unworthy of life. In a secular worldview, abortion makes sense because the unborn is a life unworthy of life. It's a worldview that has made it possible that 21% of all pregnancies in the U.S. end in an abortion. It's a worldview that has seen over 57 million lives killed since 1973. One generation, and that number is bigger than most nations in the earth. We have wiped out a whole nation of people. Do you think worldviews matter? Do you think theology and doctrine, the doctrine of man, matters? Do you think sound, bold teaching from the scriptures matter? You know what one of the craziest statistics I saw as I was studying these last two weeks? And I'll tell you what, this is the the hardest thing to study on. I found myself in tears in my office. 
the craziest thing, the craziest statistic is this. Only 48% of self-identified evangelicals who attend church, so we know that the majority of our nation says they're Christians, but they don't act like Christians. They don't go to church. These are the people that go to church and, and, and act like Christians only 48% of self-identified evangelicals who attend church would strongly agree with the statement, abortion is a sin. Not even murder. Abortion is a sin. That statement's a deeply theological statement. It directly has to do with the theology of man, the theology of God, the image of God. The evangelical church should be ashamed of this statistic. The least we can do is call abortion a sin. <laughs> I want to finish where I started in this point. What matters when it comes to the argument about abortion is not what we think the fetus is. It's what the fetus truly is that matters. If the unborn baby is truly a person, then abortion is murder, and that's a sin. This leads me to my last point. This is the heart. I want to go over the heart of the argument for and against abortion. My goal is to, to help us think clearly of this subject because we're going to have conversations with Christians and non-Christians about this subject. But I want you guys to understand the heart of this, this conflict or the heart of the argument for and against abortion is a, a clash of worldviews. It's a biblical worldview where God determines worth where God determines where life starts and ends, and abortion makes absolutely no sense, versus a secular worldview where there is no God, there is no image of God, and man defines man's worth. That's the heart of the argument. And therefore, the gospel is the answer. But thankfully, most people that you will have conversations with have a mixture of both these worldviews. Most people haven't adopted a purely secular ethic or worldview. And and this is only credited to God's common grace. God holding us back from being as evil as we can be as a nation, as a people. That God has written the law in our hearts. Most people you talk to still believe that all human life has value. More than animal life, more than plant life. And I know it's like we're starting to see that. I don't know if that's so true anymore. It is true. You know how I know it's true? When we had the mudslides two weeks ago, they were counting how many people were missing, not dogs or cats. Right? We know that human life has more value than animals. When the hurricanes hit, we're trying to get people off household roofs, not dogs or cats. In God's common grace, people know in their heart that men have more value, even if their worldview doesn't make sense of it. They're just unsure if the the fetus is a human or not. And therefore, our first goal when it comes to talking to people about abortion should be the gospel, it should be evangelism and discipleship. If someone's heart changes to God, submits to his word, and we start showing about the image of God and man's value and and showing what the Bible says about man, that's our first goal. But there's a secondary goal, and I want to share this. Because of God's common grace, listen, we can help people see the inconsistencies of their worldview. We can help them see the absurdity of the pro-abortion position. It's going to take some bold talking 
and some, some very gentle and loving talking too, right? Be careful of blasting people on Facebook. That gets nowhere. <laughs> I, I, this is just a side note. I have some time, so I'm going to say it. Um, we, we sent a group of seven kids to Berkeley to evangelize and to uh, meet with professors that are just atheistic professors that uh, hate the idea of Christianity and, and God and everything. And um, there was four different guys that this group met with. They met with um, uh, an atheistic poet and kind of like rapper and um, an atheistic professor who was a jerk. The professor was just a jerk, but the atheistic poet was a really nice guy. He was a really nice guy that that, um, really communicated really well with the kids, and it didn't convince them anything. And anything, it strengthened the the faith of the seven that went to see the absurdity of his argument. But I asked them when they came back, who was more influential, the professor or the rapper? And they said, for sure, the rapper. And I said, the professor had a better argument. I can guarantee it. How you present the argument, right? If you come off, no matter how good your argument is, if we come off as jerks in, in talking about this, no one's going to listen to us. We need to be bold and loving, and that's hard to do. <laughs> I'm, I'll be the first to admit that's hard to do. But I want to give you some common arguments, right? Our secondary goal is, is to show people the inconsistencies of their worldview. If they believe that, that all human life has value, and I believe most people do, most people you talk to believe that, we need to help them see that the unborn person is a, is a person, is a human. How do you do that? Well, I think there's a good starting place. Listen, we have to let people know that the burden of proof is on the abortionist side, They're the ones that have to prove that the unborn is not a person without a shadow of doubt, not the other way around. Why? Well, if all human life has value, then the pro-abortion has a moral responsibility, a pro-abortionist has a moral responsibility to prove that the unborn baby is not a human beyond a shadow of a doubt before supporting abortion. Because, as uh, Harold Brown, an apologist, argues, if a hunter were to see movement behind a bush and shoot at it without being sure that that movement behind was not caused by a human being rather than by an animal, such an action would be morally irresponsible at best. Regarding abortion, any doubts concerning the humanity of the the unborn child should be resolved in favor of a developing human life. We don't take chances with human life. If I see movement as a hunter in bushes and it could possibly be a human, I'm not going to shoot. Or I shouldn't shoot. It'd be morally irresponsible at best. Therefore, if there's any doubts, any doubts whatsoever that the unborn child is human, we should not abort the child. That's an argument that can be understood. So where does empirical evidence lead? We know what the Bible says. That's our foundation. But what does empirical evidence lead? Is the unborn, uh, uh, unborn a person? Here's just some scientific facts. The unborn embryo has its complete um, separate genetic code from conception. The biological fingerprint of that person that's unique to that person at conception. Neither the male nor the female reproductive elements, the egg or the sperm, has uh, the human genetic characteristics all the human genetic characteristics, they only have 23 chromosomes. 
It's at the moment of conception that combines them to make 46. 23 from the mother, 23 from the father. So that a unique individual begins the process of personal human development. And nothing from that point on in the genetic makeup of that person changes from conception. The only change that takes place is the growth and development of a particular human individual. The process um, of growth and development that this individual undergoes continues into um, infancy, infancy, uh, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Thus, fertilization or conception is the point of which a new human life begins. Remember, the burden of proof is on the abortionist that the fetus is not a person without a doubt. There's any doubts it should lead to protection of the unborn life. Listen, two weeks, two weeks into the pregnancy, before most people even know they're pregnant, there is a discernible heartbeat. The heart circulates blood within the embryo that is not the mother's blood. But the blood of the unborn baby uh, has produced, and probably and possibly a different blood type even. After about six weeks, the embryo is still less than an inch long, but has undergone considerable development. Fingers have formed on the hands. At 43 days, the unborn baby has detectable brain waves. After six and a half weeks, the embryo is moving. However, because of the tiny size of the unborn baby and the thickness of the mother's abdominal wall, uh, she does not sense movement until several weeks later. By the end of nine weeks, the fetus has uh, developed a unique set of fingerprints and sexual organs have appeared. By the end of 12 weeks, all of the organs of the body are functioning. All of this takes place in the first three months, the first trimester of the pregnancy. And you're telling me that without a shadow of a doubt, that human life doesn't start within the womb. You have to be kidding me. We as a nation have turned a blind eye to the realities that are happening around us. It's obvious that the unborn baby is a person. Listen, as you're talking with people and you're trying, helping them see this, once that's established, all pro-abortion arguments fail. I have seven common pro-abortion arguments that I'll go through. You'll hear these. As you're talking with people, I get all of these. They'll sound familiar if you've been a part of Country Oaks for a long time from Pastor Andy. I'm just going to read what he, his slides had. Um, he, he was gracious to let me have them and meet with me and talk with me about uh, this sermon. Uh, I have seven arguments, and I just want you, if, if that fetus is a person, which obviously is, then all these arguments fail. Pro-argument one, or pro-abortion argument one. You can't legislate morality. You can't make people, in other words, morally good through laws. And you know what? That's actually a true statement. Laws don't change people's hearts. But here's the response you should have. Yes, but there must be laws to regulate deeds. Does does this mean we do away with all laws that have moral foundations? Do we now make murder illegal? We are not trying to make people develop a moral character by making and enforcing laws. That's the role of religion and discipleship. 
But we are trying to prevent people from doing things that endanger others' lives regardless of how they feel about it. You know, this is the same exact rhetoric that was against the civil rights movements of the 60s. And this is what Martin Luther King Jr. said about it. We have heard the familiar cry that morals can't be legislated. This may be true, but behavior can be regulated. The law may not be able to make a person love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. Anti-abortion laws may not be able to change people's minds about the rightness or wrongness of abortion, but they can keep people from murdering the unborn. Pro-abortion argument two. Shouldn't we have tolerance? And tolerance is our, our greatest ethic in our culture. Shouldn't we have tolerant, tolerance? It's the woman's body, and we shouldn't force her to have a child. Response. Don't liberal abortion laws allow some people to force death on the unborn? You don't believe in restricting a woman's choice, but you have no problem restricting the life of the unborn? Pro-abortion argument three. We don't want to force pro-lifers to have abortions, but they want to force us to not have abortions. This demonstrates we are less restrictive and more tolerant. Response. Is it not the most severe restriction of all to be killed? Isn't it the most intolerant action murder? If you are really against force, why do you want to force death upon unwilling millions? Pro-abortion argument four. I am personally against abortion. You know, this is most people. The pro-abortionist movement was... I'm, I'm... was ingenious in coming up with the pro-choice movement. They, they knew that they didn't have the numbers in the 70s to, to uh, sway our nation towards a pro-abortion stance. So they said it's about choice. It's about the freedom of a woman. And Roe versus Wade is the right to privacy that the women... We have no business to get in, in, into uh, a place where we're telling what a woman should do with her body. Uh, that was ingenious because most people now have this argument where they say, we don't, um, or I'm personally against abortion, but I don't want to impose my personal views on those who disagree with me. Therefore, I'm pro-choice. I'm, I'm against it, but they can be for it. I don't want to put my views on those. Here's a response. Why are you against abortion? If you believe the unborn is a person, why would you not protect innocent life? Suppose the KKK wanted to begin lynching again. Would you be imposing your views on them by making and enforcing laws against lynching? Suppose a needle Nazi party uh, arose and wanted to begin exterminating Jews again. Would you be imposing your values on them by restricting their activities? Of course not. Pro-abortion argument five. Women should have reproductive freedom. I love this when Pastor Annie preached this. She does. There's four options. One, abstinence. Two, non-abortive contraceptives. Three, motherhood. And four, abortion or adoption. Five is abortion. That's just the the only one that is not um, morally acceptable. Right? There's four options that's not abortion. Side note, this is probably the saddest statistic I saw 
reading these last two weeks. In 2014, there were 17.3 adoptions per 1,000 abortions. As someone that has adopted himself, I'm glad I was in that 17.3. Pro-abortion argument six. But the unborn fetus is so different than an infant or a human adult. It is different in size, development, dependence, mobility. Are you telling me that an unborn baby should have the same rights as a newborn baby? Well, does size and development matter? Response. What about the pre-adolescent child whose reproductive system is not fully developed? Is, he, is it less terrible to molest or kill a smaller, less developed child as a larger, more fully, fully developed one? Listen, all human life is a life of development. Human life is a process of development. But, is, but the unborn is inde, or dependent and immobile. Response. Is it less evil to kill a dependent and immobile victim like a paralytic? Or someone on a ventilator than an independent or mobile one? Pro-abortion argument seven, and this is probably the one that's used the most. What about viability? Does viability matter? And just to be clear, uh, viability is the baby's ability to live on its own outside the mother's womb or for any human to live outside of a, a viable or, uh, or outside of a certain uh, uh, environment. So here's seven responses to that. The first one is the issue of dependence and independence is not morally relevant. We just went over that. Second response: the unborn is not dependent upon the mother for its identity. I mean, that's an individual human. Its identity is different than the mother and the father. Third. Response, the unborn baby's dependence on the mother for nourishment lasts long after the baby is born. I've had two. I know that one. The sick, response four, the sick and the elderly are dependent too. Are they not persons? Response five, all of us are always dependent on each other, on nature. I always have this like scary thought that, World War III is going to break out and I can't get food at the grocery store anymore. I'm dependent on that. I don't know what I do. We're dependent on each other. Just think of the ecosystem or the ecosystem that we live in. The, The atmosphere of this earth. We're dependent on that. You take us outside of this atmosphere, we're not viable, right? And that gets, uh, to point six. We are all not viable in relation to certain environments. If any one of us were placed on the moon for just a few minutes, one would quickly become aware of their non-viability. But this doesn't make them non-human. Think of Neil Armstrong in a spacesuit. Just because he was dependent on the spacesuit on the moon doesn't make him non-human. It's absurd. If you are placed underwater without scuba gear, you are now quickly going to become non-viable. But you're still human. And seven, the seventh argument. Viability depends upon time and place. Personhood doesn't. Right? Viability is changed. 
throughout the years. Viability for the unborn occurs at younger and younger ages as our medical technology increases. 50, year, 50 to 100 years ago, viability wasn't as good as it is today. In many countries today, medical technology is so ancient that viability is not what it is in the United States. Is the 30-week-old um, baby in India less human than the 28-week-old baby in the United States? That's absurd. Viability changes as our technology advanced. When Roe versus Wade was passed, viability was between 24 and 28 weeks. Now some babies have survived at 21 weeks after conception. What are we to say concerning the situation where some healthcare facilities are allowing viable babies to be killed by abortion in one room while in another room doctors are trying to heroically save others, uh, other viable Infants born premature. If the 24-week-old preemie is fully human, then so is the 28-week-old unborn who can be um, legally killed by an abortion. These are time and place considerations, not personhood considerations. There's argument and argument and argument. Again, if the baby is a person, all arguments fail. But I want to end with this because as I was studying the viability, I just wanted to know what was the youngest baby born? I mean, you have to be able to Google search that and, and find out what was the youngest baby. How, how far has our technology got? Right? How young has a baby been born? As I Google searched that, an article popped up from USA Today. The article is titled, The Earliest Premature Baby to Survive After Delivery is Now a Healthy Toddler. I, I want to read this article. The infant girl, who was, wasn't named because of family wishes, weighed less than a pound, 410 grams, when she was born in San Antonio, Texas in 2014. The baby's mother was 32 years old and at the time, um, and, or at the time and only 21 weeks and four days pregnant. Before her 20-week routine uh, ultrasound, her pregnancy was moving along normally. It was during that checkup her OBGYN saw that her cervix was shortening. From there, she was in and out of the hospital and ultimately placed on bed rest before her daughter's birth. At birth, her daughter's skin was so thin that it was nearly see-through. Dr. Ahmad, a neonatal doctor, uh, said that it was nearly see-through. Dr. Ahmad was called into the delivery room a few minutes after the baby was born. The baby's mother said um, her daughter faintly cried and moved when she came out. But Dr. Ahmad said the infant wasn't breathing when he arrived. Any baby before 30, born before 37 weeks is considered premature. A baby born before 25 weeks is considered extremely premature and often comes into this world with complicated medical problems, according to Mayo Clinic. In these situations, doctors don't recommend re, um, resuscitation. But when the mother looked at Dr. Ahmad through tears and, tears and asked him to try, Ahmad did. If you'd like us to try, I am willing to try, Ahmad said. 
when the doctors uh, placed a breathing tube into her airway, the baby that was once blue turned pink. Ahmad said, I was very happy I did that, he said. She's a wonderful, beautiful little girl. The girl is now three years old and doing well in preschool. On par with her peers. She's a little smaller in statue next to the other kids, but otherwise, she has no mental or health problems. The mother said she's a miracle and she is just normal. There's only two differences between that premature baby and the fetus at the same age getting aborted. Maybe even at the same exact hospital. One is location, inside the womb versus outside. And the other is, did the parents want that child? Listen. The unborn baby is obviously a person, and abortion is murder. I want to finish where I started. God's grace is huge. Some of the strongest pro-life advocates that are out there are people that have been a part of and or had an abortion. If that's you, accept God's grace. If you haven't accepted God's grace that he's offering, you put your faith in Christ. He died on the cross for your sins. And trust in his grace. Trust in his mercy. Trust in his forgiveness. I want to end with a quote from Albert Muller. just thought this was well said, stated. Abortion is an issue that must shear the nation's conscience. Abortion is an issue that is so real and relevant right now. Right now, there are babies being terminated in wombs. Abortion is such a crucial issue for us. However, because as Christians, we know that it's a gospel issue. And we know that right now, it is not just a baby that's being terminated. It's not just a pregnancy that's being ended. It is a life that is known by God before God made it in the womb. It is a life that is begin, it being destroyed. And brothers and sisters, as much as that must motivate us to action, as much as that must simply shear our conscience into a state whereby we cannot be satisfied until the plague on our country is brought to an end, as much as it is all those things... It is also that which drives us back to the cross, to the gospel, and back to the realization that the only one who can bring life out of death is the one who is the author of life from the first. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God, have mercy on us. As a nation, Lord, have mercy on us, Lord. God, I pray that you end this plague that's on our nation, Lord. I thankful, I'm so thankful for the progress that we've seen, Lord. Abortion is down so by such a number, Lord. Uh, I, I just pray, God, that you continue to, to save lives, Lord. You end this plague, Lord, and you bring mercy to our to our country, Lord. And and Lord, as we one day come to the realization of what we have actually done in these last 40 years, Lord. I pray that your grace reigns and you are glorified somehow, Lord.
have mercy on us, Lord. Lord, for those that have been a part of abortion, Lord, I pray for their forgiveness, Lord. I thank you that you have taken their sins as far as the east is to the west, Lord. It's, it's, it's forgiven. For those that have put their faith just like my sins have been forgiven, a sinner saved by grace, Lord. That's who we are. I pray that we rest in that. Lord, help us, Lord. Help us to be bold. Help us to be bold out in the community and, and, and loving, Lord. I pray this is a church where people feel they can come to, Lord, if they have a pregnancy that, that is um, unplanned. That we can love on, on women, Lord, that find themselves in that situation. Lord, help us be that. In your son's name, amen.